Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore and our favorite, well, various forms of media. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got not one, but two stupendous co-hosts with me today. First, you know him, you love him, uh, he's back as usual, Matt Rossi. Welcome again, Matt. Howdy. And our special guest today is none other than, well, it's Liz Harper. And you've, you've, if you've listened to any of our other podcasts, you know that Liz has a lot of interests. And you might be asking yourself, <laughs> Liz, why are you here? So, Liz, why are you here today? Uh, as you also may know, if you listen to our other podcasts, I don't really know anything about Warcraft lore. But I do know a lot about Star Trek. Yes, and that, as requested by our Patreon supporters, uh, is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, again, if you have questions for our podcast or any of the podcasts, or if you have a show suggestion, be sure to send them into podcasts at blizzardwatch.com. Uh, if you are a Patreon supporter, you can go ahead and put them in our Patreon Q and podcast questions channel. Uh, again, Patreon supporters are the ones that did ask for us to co start covering a little bit of Star Trek stuff. So, you know, we're going to do that. Uh, if you are not a Patreon supporter, there is also a channel in our Discord server for Q and podcast questions. You can also throw stuff in there and we will be more than happy to review them. So today we're going to be talking about a very special two-part episode that, if I remember correctly, was the season three ending and the season mm -hmm. four opener of Star Trek, The that Next Generation. So I'm going to shut up and let Liz talk a little <laughs> bit about this at first, because we are going to be talking about the best of both worlds. Liz, what was so important about these two episodes? Uh, well, the best of both worlds, it wasn't the episode that introduced the Borg. But it brought the Borg into Federation space, which was, the Borg was kind of a big boogeyman, but they were always presented as way far away. 
but the thing was, the Borg were completely undefeatable. And you get to see them come into Federation space, um, fight with the Enterprise, and the Enterprise can't win this fight. You know, previously we've watched as, you know, throughout Star Trek, even when they've encountered challenges, they've overcome them. And here we hit this big brick wall where they cannot overcome this challenge. And it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, an earth-shaking shift for Next Generation, which has really been, it's been very focused on diplomatic solutions. And it's been, you know, Picard as a captain is kind of the ultimate diplomat. And now we're all faced with this enemy. There's only a military solution, and there's not a military solution. And Matt, you were talking before about uh, a couple of reasons why this these two episodes were were sort of important. And f- one of the things you mentioned is that, uh, and I'll let you talk a little bit about this, Star Trek The Next Generation, a lot of the earlier episodes weren't actually written for The Next Generation, were they? Well, uh, the first, obviously, um, uh, Encounter at Farpoint was written for The Next Generation, but it was an adaptation of a, a different show. Uh, originally, Gene Roddenberry had wanted to bring Star Trek back in the mid, in just before the uh, motion picture got made. They were working on Star Trek Phase Two, which was going to be basically just more of the Enterprises of the original, the the adventures of the original Enterprise with a slightly different crew. Um, there was going to be Leonard Nimoy had no desire to be a part of this. So they'd replaced him with a complete, like a full Vulcan named Zahn. Uh, he became the blueprint for data. They had a two characters you'll recognize who were on the show were um, uh, Will Decker, who was going to be the XO of the ship, and Ilya, the the bald Delphin, I think they're called Deltons. Yeah, Deltons. She was those of those characters were in Star Trek the Motion Picture. And at the end of it, both were unceremoniously written out. But they were basically, again, the models for Deanna Troy and William Riker. Uh, so so Phase 1 had some scripts. The thing is, is that when Roddenberry was doing this, he'd lost writers like Gene Kuhn or uh, DC Fontana, who she was one of the best writers they ever had. And the scripts were... I'm trying to find a diplomatic way to say this. Uh, Gene Roddenberry it was a very influential person in terms of Star Trek. He created it. Uh, a lot of its really interesting ideas come from him. But he also had some less good ideas. Like something he seemed to really like was the idea of having characters have weird things happen to them involving like space aliens making them give birth to them uh which is an episode i'm sure you'll remember where diana troy gets impregnated by a space alien and then gives birth to that same alien as a child i believe, I believe that was the first episode of season two just yeah. kicking us off into season two and and that was actually originally a phase two episode uh because the writer's strike hit and they had to adapt several bad show bad shows from phase two just because they didn't have anything else because the writer strike was on they didn't have any writers, but not all the stuff in the original couple seasons was that way. Um, there's an episode of of the Next Generation in season one where 
Tasha Yar, the white blonde woman who is in charge of the ship's security, is kidnapped by people from a planet of black people. And it's like yikes. This this is like so bad. It this is racist in so many different terrible ways, guys. What what happened? How did this get made? Um that kind of thing happened partially because, you know, they didn't they didn't have what at the time the original series had people like DC Fontana and Gene Kuhn who could basically come in and say to Gene, okay, I see where you're going with this. Let me fix it. And Star Trek Next Generation didn't have that until Michael Piller got hired. And he didn't get really off the ground until season two. Um, In a lot of ways, you could basically argue that the best of both worlds is basically the moment where Michael Piller's efforts to redeem the show finally pay off. Like, not that season three was bad. It wasn't. But this is the moment where you say, okay, we've moved from this thing. I, I, I hesitate to mention this, but this is one of the things I think you really need to know about Roddenberry and, and why you need someone like Michael Piller to come in and be a buffer between him and the world. You guys know about the Ferengi, right? Yep. I believe you talked about Quark uh, when we were talking about Star Trek on the of the regular podcast, Liz. And you talked yeah. about how he came in and basically saved the uh, interpretation of the Ferengi. Yeah, Quark is a great character. And before that point, they'd been yeah. very one-dimensional. Armin Shimmerman, who is the actor who played Quark, was also the actor to first play a Ferengi on Star Trek. Yep. And one of the things he talked about was that he felt the need to redeem them. Like, he, he that, that, that they had been treated poorly. That's all Roddenberry. Um, Roddenberry, one of the stories that's told quite frequently about him by people who worked with him, like Rick Berman, is that he wanted the Ferengi to be like a dangerous, menacing force. But at the same time, he had a lot of notes about, oh God, how do I talk about this? Let's just say he wanted them to wear enormous cod pieces. To hold, to hold what you would expect to be held in a cod piece. And he talked about it a lot, about how they should be extremely well endowed in that area. To the point where people couldn't get him to stop talking about it. And they would actually be like, Gene, I don't have time for this 45-minute dissertation about Ferengi genitalia, if you don't mind. I, I have to work on this show that you want to make. So when Pillar came in, you, you see the shift because like one of the episodes that like one of the last episodes of the original batch of writers was uh, the, the one called, I think that's like the, the casino Royale or something. There's a yeah. space casino built mm-hmm, out of a mm-hmm. book that yeah, that's one of the last of the original episodes. And then pillar came in and he was writing a lot of them and, and they got other script writers to come in as well. Um, some of them you later saw in deep space nine, like uh, I think I want to say iron Stephen bear. Uh, was one of them. And so, you know, they, they started, they, they got DC Fontana to write some stuff too. And then it started getting better. And I think that that's, it's fair to say that the first two seasons, especially the first season of Star Trek, the next generation was extremely rocky. Like this was not a show that knew what it wanted to be yet. Uh, I think that's a fair statement. One of the things I've always felt about early Next Generation is that it 
feels so much like the original series. Like, it is screaming out, we are Star Trek. This is Star Trek. Remember Star Trek? Didn't you like Star Trek? This is more Star Trek. And it did. It took like a season and a half, two seasons, for it to really get away from that and become something that was its own thing. Yeah, I would actually even argue that it was trying so hard to be original Star Trek that it missed what made original Star Trek good. And like I think that would be my argument. Because like for, they did an entire episode that was literally just a copy of an episode from the next from the original series. Yeah, uh, I, I don't remember the, the Naked Now. I I don't remember if it's the Naked Now or the Naked Time because one of those is the original series episode and one it, of those is the Next Generation episode. Oh yeah. I know the original series one was the Naked Time. So it has to be the name. And it must be. (laughs) Joe, I I heard you trying to. Yeah, I I was going to say there. I think what you what you're getting at is one of the things that I really wanted to talk about, too, from uh, just a storytelling perspective is for me going back to just kind of pull back from the history of it and talk more specifically about these two particular episodes. It was the first time I really felt that the next generation was the next generation fully. You started having all of the elements that made, like you were talking about, the original series Star Trek. It had all of the science. It had all of the drama. It had all of the interactions that you would expect. It had all of the the combat tricks that you could possibly expect. And as Liz pointed out earlier, it's coming against that sort of insurmountable odds, coming against that that big boogeyman at that point in time, which were the Borg, this thing that had been in neutral space for so long. Uh, And I believe the only other time they ever dealt with it was when Q was involved, a cosmic being of absolute immense power. Uh, So they were kind of on their own. And you start to see that human ingenuity that made Star Trek such a, a, a thing for science fiction fans, really. Uh, You had your captains and your first uh, officers trying to figure out their way. Uh, You had this wonderful conversation between Picard and Guinan um, about like him taking uh, Picard, taking that final tour, quote unquote, final tour through the Enterprise before going to war and then talking about the significance of that and the symbolism in it. And it had all of those elements. Uh, And honestly, it really was for the time, particularly just superb storytelling in that moment with all of the characters. You even get a sense of Wesley Crusher, who at this point had grown up a little bit. He was no longer just the random kid. He was actually part of the crew now uh, and actually doing things like manning the helm uh, that you would expect to see, you know, the big people on the crew. There's even a nod to the original series in there where there's the hull breach in engineering and Jordy comes up to the bridge and comments about how everything can be done from the bridge. Everything's going to be fine. And it, you have that shot that almost gives it's that reminiscent of the original star Trek, but then you look at it and it's like, they break away from it in such a way that it's like they knew what they were doing, right? They knew what they were framing. They knew what they were doing with that story moment. Uh, and it was just such a, It was, I don't want to say a masterclass because there has definitely been things that have been better, but it was almost like the series coming of age and it kind of set the tone for other series that would come after it in how do you make yourself distinct from what, what came before while still paying tribute to, you know, what happened before you got there. So just, yeah, go ahead. 
I was going to say, uh, maybe Liz, do you want to do a run through of the thing really fast, just explaining what happens in the episode so people? Yeah, so, uh... <laughs> I mean, if you if you haven't seen the episode, I would definitely recommend you go see it because. Uh, it's maybe a little hard to understand this conversation without it. But basically, you have the Borg are heading to Earth. This insurmountable force heading to Earth. And Starfleet is trying to do anything it can to stop them. But they aren't ready. They know they aren't ready. And, uh, of course, it's the Enterprise is the only ship in the vicinity that can really help. Help from other ships is like six days away. It's the Enterprise between the Borg and Earth, basically. And, uh, of course, the the really, really big thing, like I've mentioned, they're coming up against these undefeatable odds, is that the Borg kidnap Captain Picard. It's not only are they this unstoppable force, but they go right inside the Enterprise and take the captain. They take this grand figure that everyone on the crew certainly looks up to and trusts, and we as the audience have come to admire and look up to as kind of this calming, centering force who always knows what to do, who always has a solution to every problem. The board come in and just pluck him off the bridge like it was nothing. And they assimilate him to become one of the Borg. And mm-hmm. that's just, that's, that's a hell of a moment. Because it takes everything about Star Trek that you were secure with, that you were comfortable with, and just in an instant, it rips it all away. And you've left Riker in charge of the Enterprise. You've left the crew in disarray because they'd all looked up to Picard. Half of most of them want to go and rescue Picard from the Borg. But Riker knows we don't have time for this. We have to stop this. We are the only thing between the Borg and Earth. And so it's that first of the two parters ends with Riker talking to Locutus of Borg that Picard has turned into. And Riker is standing there and says, fire. And that's the end of the first part of the episode. It's a huge cliffhanger. It was months before we saw the conclusion. And wow, that's just that's just one of these big moments. That's a huge moment in Star Trek and just in television. That was a great moment. For a lot of reasons, right? Especially because uh William Riker at this point had been a lot of people had sort of dismissed his character as being like, "Oh, he's another he's another Kirk. He's just a playboy. He doesn't really like he's not super intelligent or star like starfleet material and they have been slowly breaking away from that for a while they've been developing his character but this is the moment like in that particular moment in that framing and everything that happens with his character it's a coming of age for him so to speak because it, there's discussions even before this between him and Picard about why haven't you taken a commission you are perfectly capable of becoming a captain they have offered this to you multiple times why are you not taking it uh and him not really given a reason, but it's becoming this constant thing. It's like, well, why is he doing this? Does he not want the responsibility? Does he uh, not want to, you know, be a leader? Or is, and you start to understand that there's a sentimentality, not and in loyalty, not just to Picard, but to his time on the Enterprise and what the Enterprise represents. And 
you see that throughout this as well, because the, the declaration of, of firing with him being elevated to captain, because at this point, Picard is, a, uh, is Locutus. Picard's gone. He's no longer captain of the vessel uh, and him having to make rough and tough decisions, but also having to stand back because at all these points throughout the first two uh, seasons, most of the time Riker's going on away missions. He's not staying on the ship unless Picard specifically tells him not to go and to stay behind and man the ship. Usually it's him leading those away teams. A lot of the planet side stuff is with him. And this is the first time he doesn't have a choice. And you actually see some of that leading up to it. I'm going to go on the away team. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to lead this mission. Uh, we're going to go get him back and all this stuff. And, and he's slapped with the reality of it. You are in charge. You are responsible, not just for the ship, but all these people. You need to stay here. And he settles into that role, settles into that responsibility. And you can see the demeanor shift in that moment you're talking about where he says, fire. Because he knows what he's doing, he knows what has to happen, and he's having to do the thing that Picard did with him. He has to trust the people around him to complete the tasks. And it's such a pivotal moment of growth for his character. And I like I absolutely adored that moment for him. Like it's it was rough. It was that huge cliffhanger moment. And it like Liz pointed out, like you didn't know what to expect because it was the end of the season. It was the yeah. last moment of season three. I also think I have to jump in here, though, to mention one thing that you guys haven't mentioned yet. The character of Shelby, Commander Shelby. Oh, yeah. Uh, played by Elizabeth Dennehy, who Elizabeth Donahue. No, it is Dennehy. Sorry. Uh, she's on the ship. She's brought in by an admiral, Admiral Hansen, who's close personal friends with Picard. And basically, she's been in charge of their anti-Borg weapon strategies this whole time. Like, they put her in charge of the program, and she got it further than anybody else had been able to. Um, when they bring her in, she's she's aware that, that Riker has been offered command of a ship. And the reason they bring her in is basically because Hanson's not too subtly saying, here's a good first officer for you, Jean-Luc, since yours is going to go be a captain, right? And so you get the sense, not only is Riker you know, having to figure out why he hasn't taken the, uh, the jobs yet. Uh, Picard is under pressure because everyone's like, why are you keeping this guy who could be off commanding his own ship? He's why is he just your XO? He doesn't, he, you know, he's clearly got what he needs. And Picard's like, look, I'm, it's not my thing. I'm not doing anything. Right. So there's, there's that tension. There's the, the character of Shelby is fascinating because a, it's a woman in this role and we've never had a woman Kirk before, but now we do. Um, and, and it would lead to other things. The fact that Voyager had a, a female captain is probably in no small part due to Shelby's Shelby's role in these two episodes. Um, but she also gets right up in Riker's face. Oh yeah. And, and which is, which is actually really physically interesting because, uh, Jonathan Franks is very tall and she is very short. Yeah. She is like, like significantly she, shorter than him. Yeah. But she is in his face, and she, you know, there's that big difference between them, but she does not care. Well, plus it's like, it's interesting because in a lot of ways, I think that she was meant to represent an aspect of him, like a mirror for him to be looking in, because she is just like he was. 
before he took the Enterprise job, he was a hard charger looking to get himself an XO position on a ship. He was looking to be that guy, and she is that guy. That's that's who she is. When she shows up, she starts throwing like she starts. She gets their their ability to respond to the Borg off the ground, but in the process, she's very clearly establishing herself as a presence and saying, you know, we should do this. At one point, the two of them have a disagreement over uh, an idea she has for when the Borg show up, and he's Riker tells her it's too risky. And she's like, I would like you to have the captain determine that. And he goes, I will bring every alternative to the captain. But when he goes up to the captain's ready room to, to brief him, she's already there. And she already gave the captain her idea. And the captain's like, you know, you're right, Will. It's too risky right now. But I want you to develop it as a backup plan. So they two of them go into the elevator together. And it's he doesn't dress her down. But he very he's like, if you go around me again like that, we are going to have a problem. And she's like, permission to speak frankly? He goes, of course. And she goes, you need to get out of my way. And that's this. This this is what is established in the first episode of this two-parter. Is this adversarial, not friendly relationship where they, they clearly don't really like each other. She thinks he's too cautious. He thinks she's too aggressive. And then in the second episode, which I, I'm going to let you tell them what happens in the second episode, Liz, because you did a good job last time. But in the second episode, this relationship is further explored. And I think it really helps solidify this show. This, these, two, these two episodes, it solidifies what Star Trek is going to become as it goes forward, in my opinion. So if you want to talk about the, the second episode, because I think that that's... The end of that one is really fascinating and sets up a lot of storylines we see in the next couple seasons. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the second episode, they begin where they ended. Riker has ordered them to fire on the Borg, this weapon they've been working on, this special weapon that's going to channel so much energy, and it's the only way they're going to stop them, and it, but, it, but doing it is going to burn out the main deflector dish. This is their one shot. And so, yes, Riker goes in, he fires, and the weapon does nothing. Their best shot at stopping the Borg, and, like, no damage at all. And, of course, if, if you've seen the episode, you know it's because the Borg assimilated Picard. They know everything Picard knows. And this means they know everything about the Enterprise and its crew and the capabilities of everyone. They have so much knowledge. So at the end of the previous episode, the end of part one, we were looking at these terrible odds, this insurmountable problem, this unstoppable force. And when you go into the part two, it's like the problem has become even worse. We took our best shot and it did nothing. The enemy knows everything. He can counter our every move. And it just, it feels really hopeless there for a while. And you feel among the crew and with Riker, the tone is very dour in a way that I don't think you've ever seen Star Trek up to this point. And I think there are not many times after this that you really see something where the attitude is just so completely hopeless. Riker clearly thinks that he's not ready for this, that he cannot stop the Borg. And you get that attitude from the crew as well. 
in fact, Guinan goes up and talks to Riker and basically says, you've got to let go of go Picard. You've got to be your own man. Come up with your own solutions. Because of Picard, if the Borg know everything Picard knows, you got to throw out the book. And, of course, you know, because it is Star Trek, everyone rallies, and they do come up. They come up with a completely different solution, where they do go in and res manage to rescue Picard. And I suppose in the end, Picard does kind of come through as the hero of the hour, suggesting that they implant a command in the Collective that puts them to sleep. Of course, Picard recovering from being a Borg was not very communicative, and the only thing he managed to say was sleep. Which Data correctly interpreted and sent this command to the Borg, telling them to deactivate, to, be, to go into a regeneration sequence. And with the Borg deactivated and defenseless, the remaining Federation ships came in and destroyed them. End of episode. Actually, I think it. So, in fact, I know it was a uh, self-destruct because I just watched these episodes. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. The so they when, when they they sent the regeneration command, but it wasn't time for regeneration, and with the uh, entire the entire crew now basically in the sleeping pods, the ship wasn't being maintained, mm -hmm. and so the so the ship was like, "Oh, something's wrong. We have to self-destruct the cube so these primitives don't get their hand on it." So that's <laughs> that's what happened. But yeah, otherwise, yeah, that's 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 the episode. And I think, ooh, ooh, I do want to mention one thing at the very end, though. Yeah. When you see right, you see Picard back at the end. He isn't, he's in his uniform, but he isn't all better. Mm -hmm. He has the no. marks of the Borg stuff on his face still. And after he talks to Shelby before she leaves, and after he talks to Riker, um, who has just been captain, he was promoted. He got a battlefield commission to captain. He was captain of the ship. If you ever look at a captains of the Enterprise D, it's going to be Picard, Riker, and then Picard again, because Riker was was breveted the rank and given command of the ship. Um, but after he talks to Riker, and Riker goes, and he's sitting in his office, and he's just staring, and it's really powerful. I think it. The next episode after really falls hard upon this. We're not really here to talk about that one, but I think it's it's the first time you get to see what becomes a defining characteristic of him is that underneath the surface, all that calm, all that rationality and diplomacy, this was a point where he is very badly wounded and doesn't just get better from it. So I, I it's one of the things I've always remembered watching this episode is that lingering pain that, you know, that really is much more true to life than what you usually see where like, you know, Spock's brain is removed from his body and his body is driven around by a remote control for the entire episode. Then they put his brain back in, in the end and everybody's fine. <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah, you know, yeah, let's tell a joke now, Spock. I don't understand your human jokes, doctor. And everybody freeze frames and a laugh except Spock, obviously it, it's this one, you know, if, if this, if that had been written like this, Spock would have been, they took my brain out. You know that's a big deal. So I, I remember that I remember at the time thinking, "Wow, he I, they're going to actually there's going to be consequences to this," and it was really fascinating to see. I mean, you do kind of have to look. This is almost a three part episode because the episode following it, which Matt was just talking about, titled "Family," I believe, is 
Picard, after all this, the Enterprise is getting some repairs because it's gotten beaten up in this encounter with the Borg. Picard goes home. Picard goes back home to France and sees his brother, and you just kind of see this trauma working on him. And he has, like, a little breakdown in the middle of this episode where he's like, the Borg did things to me. I could not do anything against them. And you just see this. It's a big emotional wound. And, like, he goes back to the ship. He's Captain Picard again. He's in control. He's calm and in command. But you see that under this, he's been very hurt. And that was that was a really raw episode because you yeah. don't usually see emotion quite like that. You don't see trauma quite like that. And you you don't see helplessness like that throughout the best of both worlds. Uh, there is this theme of helplessness, an insurmountable enemy. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's and not you, just the, the Borg. It's, it's, the, it's what you become fighting them. Because they have to do stuff like the, you were talking before about how throwing out the book, Guinan's mm-hmm. throwing out the book bit. The reason they managed to get him out of the Borg cube is because Riker sits down and says to himself, okay, he knows what we were planning and he knows me. So I have to do something I wouldn't do. And so he does this incredibly risky thing of sending data and Worf out in a shuttlecraft while Troy and Dr. And, uh, Dr. Crusher set up with uh, Chief O'Brien in the lab and they, they kidnap Locutus. They kidnap the Borg back and they do all this because it is completely out of character. It's something that Picard would never allow. It's something Picard would never expect Riker to do. And thus it works. And it's interesting because it is the kind of thing the Borg, for all their intelligence and adaptability, they don't seem to understand what a lie is. At one point he even says, you know, you have all of Picard's memories. Picard trusted me. Have I ever lied to Picard? And he's like, no, he trusted you implicitly. And trust me now. And meanwhile, he's lying right to its face. Technically not lying. He didn't didn't intend him any harm. No, I know, but it's just interesting. He pulled a Riker. How, he absolutely yeah. pulled a Riker. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing I really like about the way Riker handles the situation is that he handles it as himself. Because Liz is absolutely right. The whole time he was trying to be Picard wasn't working. Nothing he did trying to be Picard worked. They tried to use the weapon the way he knew Picard would. It didn't work because Picard knew about it. It was only by doing something intrinsic to himself that he could pull something out. And I really like one of the reasons I like the Shelby uh, Riker relationship in this episode is because Shelby really does come like serve as a reminder. It's like, he even tells her, I want you to keep being like irritating. I want you to keep pushing me. I don't want like, you know, Worf, if Worf was my first officer, I know exactly how Worf would handle it. If, if data was my first officer, I know how data would handle it. I want someone who will irritate me and come up with things I'm not going to expect. So in a way he's heeding Guinan's advice there too. When he temporarily makes Shelby his first officer. I, I, I really liked, I also liked the fact that he felt the need to tell Worf and, and data that both of them were, you know, he would, both of them would be good first officers. And he thought about both of them. I think that that was a nice, that was a Riker touch. Picard wouldn't do that. 
Picard wouldn't tell you to your face, you know, I did think about you for this job, but I just like, yeah, he would, expect yeah. you to, he would, he, he would expect you to just understand what he did. Riker tells people why he does things. It, Riker kind of understood that you needed to be vocal about that, right? Like you had to, it's almost like I talk about this in real life all the time. There's a couple different styles of management. One of them is the expectation that you only talk to somebody and tell them uh, when they do something wrong. And the rest of the time, they just assume that they're doing everything right. And you don't go out of your way necessarily to praise. I'm not saying that Picard never did that, but his, his style was definitely a little more, they know me and how I am. And that should be the end of it. I mean, I'm, I'm really simplifying it. Piker is Piker. Picard is reserved. (laughs) Yeah. Picard is reserved. Riker is genial. That's their, yes. their styles yeah. are different. Um, and that's what I think is one of the interesting things about this show is like saying, Hey, you don't have to be the, when he says it at the, or a little staff meeting, he's like, I can, I can step in for him. I can take over for him, but I can't replace him. And that's, the truth of everybody you go into a position somebody else had you aren't replacing them you're just taking the position you're not them and you're not going to be them and that's just it's it's a quiet little thing in the middle of this massive episode about space space cyborgs coming to turn everyone in the world into like drones and it's a very late 80s early 90s idea for a villain uh, in in a lot of ways, when you look at the original Star Trek with the Romulans and the Klingons, it was very Cold War. Uh, a lot of the stories are are explicit or implicit Vietnam critiques, and like the the anti racism shows are pretty broad and 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 not very subtle. The Borg are the first truly of their time nemesis for the next generation, instead of an important like. When the Romulans came back, that was just the Romulans because the Romulans are in the original show. But with the Borg, this is an antagonist that is unique to this show. And that is about the kind of things that that the, the people writing this are thinking about. But runaway, you know, materialism, runaway, you know, connectedness. Because at the time, the internet wasn't even really a thing. Like, this show was, went off the air in like 1990, I think, or 91. No, uh, this this episode aired in 1990. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking like the internet wasn't really going to be big for another, like I think of like in 1993, 94, I remember all, getting all, on a gopher server. I was going to say all good things was the last episode. And that was 1994. If I remember right. Yeah. So there's a lot of the time in, in the selection of the Borg as the nemesis. Yeah. But I've, I've talked a lot. Uh, Liz or Joe, you guys talk. Well, one of the things I, one of the reasons I want to, uh, things I want to talk about is sort of the significance of this episode for everything moving forward. And I kind of hinted at it and I kind of want to talk about it with you, uh, with you both, is that these two episodes not only kind of set the tone for the remaining uh, pieces of the series, uh, for the remaining seasons, but also how new stories were going to be told in this space. And it, made it okay for creators to come in and offer unique things for those particular series. And we see that sort of echoed in everything that comes after the next generation. 
uh, this has ripples of effects through Deep Space Nine. This has ripples of effects uh, through uh, Voyager and through uh, even the animated series and everything that's currently going on. Uh, and it it made it okay to not have everything be samey and sort of expand the universe. And at the same time that this was going on, and Liz and I have talked about this a little bit in the past, you're getting a bevy of books as well. You're getting almost like an expanded universe that are releasing at the same time that sort of this pivotal moment starts hitting, right? And now you start getting those those hopeful moments of all these writers were allowed to create these things. Are they going to start drawing from them? And we start to see that they can after this. Um, and the Borg remain sort of a boogeyman, but they're not an unbeatable boogeyman after this. And in fact, we start to see um, more complicated interactions with them, not only through next series, but also with movies uh, that start releasing as well, because this set the tone for a lot of the next generation movies that came out. Remember the Borg queen and everything that happened there. It wasn't exactly a plus writing, but it definitely interested me as a viewer because now it's like the Borg has something approximating human nature. Almost. They're not shying completely away from it. Like they originally were. And that's partially due to what happened in this, these two episodes when they come to realize, Oh, we're not invincible question mark. Like resistance (laughs) isn't futile. What? Like there there's, there's this really interesting dynamic shift that just ripples throughout the rest of star Trek because of these two episodes. So what do you think the most long-term lasting impact on how storytelling happened in the universe that stemmed from this? Or do you think it did? If you disagree with me, please, by all means, Liz. Well, I mostly think it's the Borg themselves. We like, like we said, we've seen them before, but this is like the first time we really, really seriously run into them. And the Borg have a huge ripple effect that goes on throughout the series, not just the next generation, but particularly in Voyager, it comes up because Voyager has a Borg crew member, an ex-Borg crew member. It comes up in Picard. And the essential thing about the Borg is a question of humanity. Can the Borg take away your humanity? What makes you a human? What makes you you? When you become assimilated, you become part of a collective mind. And we we see that thought continuing. We see later in The Next Generation, there is the episode I, Borg, where oh, they yeah. rescue a Borg drone. Yeah. And, you know, it's Dr. Crusher is like, I can't leave this guy to die because she looks at him and she sees, you know, a kid. And he has all of this Borg stuff in him, but he's just a person. She sees a person. They bring him back to the Enterprise, they heal him, and just in interacting with him, talking to him, you see there is a person in there. You see Picard confronts this Borg after, you know, he's been on the ship for a while, and he's like, we're going to assimilate the crew. He's playing up the Locutus angle. Everyone will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. And the, the Borg is like, but resistance isn't futile. I've been talking to these people. Resistance isn't futile. And you learn that are the you have this essential conflict. Are the Borg people? 
At which point are we individuals? And at which point are we this collective mind? If you're a part of this collective, are you still human? Is there still an identity? And you see that you can come back from that. But you also, in some Star Trek, you see the the, um, inverse of that. Later in The Next Generation, you meet a group of Borg that are that include this Borg we met earlier in Next Generation, who's taken the name Hugh. You meet Hugh again with a group of Borg that it's like Hugh went back to the collective and his sense of individuality started spreading mm-hmm. because he had that in his head and he plugged back into the collective and then everyone had it. But then they were so disorganized, they couldn't function. And they've kind of banded back together because under, uh, under lore, which is another complicated qu- thing. But because they couldn't function without the collective. I, I gotta and, say, and guys, th- if you're listening, Data has an evil robot brother named Lore. They're twins. That's that's all you need to know for the purposes of this. D- data versus go, go Lore. On. Go figure. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Yeah. Um, and later in Voyager, you see they encounter a group of former Borg who, once they became discarded, connected from the collective, once they became individuals again, there was all of this conflict between them. And they wanted to become a collective again because they had a unified will. They were organized. They worked together peacefully. But when they left the collective, it's like, okay, you've got some humans, you've got some Klingons, you've got some Romulans, you've got all of these conflicts going on between people. And they're like, no, we want to be a collective. Being a collective was way better than this. And well, you see later in Voyager, huh? I was Go. gonna say like uh, you you get more uh, essence of this with uh, I was gonna say Seven of Nine, Memory Alpha, right? Yeah, like yeah. it's it's the there's a speech that I believe was delivered, and I, I don't remember the context and the uh, the the quote. I remember the context though, um, but it was I think it's like my link to the collective has been severed for nearly four years. If I die, everything that I've accomplished. In that time, everything I achieved as an individual will be lost. My memories, my experiences, it will be as if I never existed. And like that never would have happened. They never would have been able to sever a connection to the collective or even understand what that means or be able to have somebody who came back. Maybe not completely because there are some seven to nine still has some very Borg tendencies uh, just because of the nature of of when uh, they were taken off the Raven and everything that happened after that. Uh, but like everything you're talking about establishes that character to be that complicated. And that's one of the, that's one of the most like that episode, like not to go too far off, but like memory alpha, that, that thing, that quote made me cry. Cause I'm like, Holy heck that's existential. And like, we never would have gotten there with such a complicated character without this. Sorry, please continue. (laughs) I mean, just, I think the Borg represent this great, conflict this inner conflict what makes you you what makes you part of a group how can you work together it's all these really essential questions these really philosophical questions am i human am i a person the borg bring all of that to star trek and it never goes away matt i was talking to my wife about it today and one of the things that we we were talking about like uh, the best of both worlds is comes out a solid decade and, and change before um, 9-11 did or 9-11 actually happened. But in a way you can see that post 9-11 Star Trek writing, especially the Picard series has 
gone with the idea of a societal trauma like the Borg invasion would have been and how that would affect people. Because before the Borg, nobody ever got close to Earth. The Klingons didn't manage it during the Klingon mm-hmm. War back in the previous century. Ooh. Nobody got there before. The Romulans couldn't do it. Oh, that, but, sorry. Real, real quick aside, real quick. That's the other thing that's important in this episode is like the when you're talking about like the Admiral, they were thinking about mm-hmm. re- they reached out to the Klingons and they were going about to reach out to the Romulans. Like mm-hmm. that's how desperate it was. Sorry, continue, but that sets up the framework for all this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when this event happened, like you look at Deep Space Nine is entirely based around the response to this event. Benjamin Sisko was a commander on one of the ships at Wolf 359 that Locutus, you know, led the board cube to just walk right over. Um, so he has a personal animosity against Picard. He understands that Picard wasn't responsible. So he doesn't, he does not intellectually hold him responsible, mm-hmm. but emotionally that's his wife's killer and he can't get past it. And everything he did before he became the head of Deep Space Nine was trying to find ways to stop the Borg. The existence of the Defiant is based around that. And and we talked before about Picard's trauma, but the entire Federation went through trauma. Because Earth is where the original Federation Treaty was signed. It's where the Tellarites, the Andorians, the Vulcans, and the humans got together and started this thing. It's where the Federation was born. There's a reason Earth is Sector 001. It's not because humans are more important. It's because this is where the Federation Charter was signed. Mm -hmm. This is where the Federation Council meets. This is where Starfleet's headquarters is. First contact originated from that point, right? Yeah. And for the first time since, like, you know, Star Trek V with the whales, an alien (laughs) force got all the way to earth system, except this one wasn't just trying to find some whales and it wasn't trying to find its creator. It was there. It was number four, by the way, the voyage home. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Star Trek, Star Trek five is the the one with the, the God. Yeah. God needs a starship. Yeah. Yeah. But but my point, my point being no V'ger is number one. Uh, Oh yeah. Never mind. Sorry. (laughs) Thanks for making an error immediately after correcting. You're welcome. Uh, But my point is just that from this moment, a lot of things that were once absolutely unthinkable to the Federation start being thinkable. Warships. The Enterprise wasn't a warship. The Enterprise D was an exploration ship. It it had weapons because you need them, but it wasn't built for war. That's why whenever it went up against a Klingon or a Romulan ship, it was kind of always on the back foot just because the ship wasn't designed for, for warfare. It could fight, but that's not what it was made to do. In most of its stuff, even the deflector shield was made for defensive capabilities, yeah. redirecting energy, not yeah. necessarily yeah. all warfare. But the Enterprise E is a warship. That's mm-hmm. a that is a ship designed and built for the express purpose of killing Borg vessels. It's got all these weapons that do things that make it harder to adapt to them, uh, and that's just the start. By the time of Picard, the Federation is backward thinking. It's reactionary and it's, it's, it's given up on a lot of those Federation values that were supposed that Picard himself held so dear. Um, Picard managed to hold on to them. He, when coming through his trauma, you, you, this is a perfect example. 
the thing Liz mentioned about Hugh. Uh, when they mm-hmm. first caught Hugh, Picard was like, come up with a way to disable the Borg. Study him. Come up with a way to do it. And they, Jordy and Data did. They came up with a way. They came up with a symbol that when the Borg saw it, they would try to solve it mathematically and it would create a logic fault. And it would essentially be like taking a hammer to the collective. Even worse than Hugh's individuality. It would have just shut them all down. They would have like self-destructed trying to work it out. It's basically a basilisk if you, you know, that, that concept. And they didn't use it. But you know full well that the, enter- the, the Federation that going the way it was going in Picard would have used it. Uh, spoilers for season two of Picard. Because we see an alternate version of the Federation that did use it. And did take out the Borg. A militaristic, aggressive federation that had abandoned everything Jean-Luc once held dear, led by a Jean-Luc who had abandoned everything he held dear. And that's the thing. That idea, that trauma idea, that lingering effects idea, you see it in Deep Space Nine. In fact, Mm -hmm. it is one of the centerpieces of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, very much so. Uh, do you, do you guys remember? I don't remember exactly what episode this was, but it, I think it was Quark and Garris, Garrick talking. I always want to say Garris. Uh, Quark, <laughs> it was Quark and Garrick talking, and Quark's like, you know, this root beer. It's it's like the Federation. It's like the humans. And Garrick is like, you know what I know about humans? They're deceptive. The way of the warrior, by the way. I just looked yeah. it up. I had to. Thank you. <laughs> and Quark's like, what do you mean they're deceptive? Yeah. Quark's like, what do you mean they're deceptive? He goes, it's it's like this. They're the nicest people you're ever going to meet. They're kind and friendly and patient, and they want everybody to be like them. And not in a bad way, but that they, they want everyone to be kind and friendly and patient. But then you take away their creature comforts, and you keep them up for a while with no food or sleep, and you put them in a dangerous situation, and that sweet, friendly you know, human that you've come to think of as almost like a, like a soft little animal or something will destroy you. They will fight harder than any Klingon you ever want to meet. They will rip throats out. They are not this soft, friendly species. They're more Cardassian than Cardassians. And I'm deeply suspicious of them. There was another thing in there too. There was another part of that quote that I thought was really interesting. It was like, uh, when he introduces them originally to the root beer, uh, and he, he says, it's vile. And he says, I know, it's bubbly and cloying and happy, just like the Federation. But you know what? Really, You know what's really frightening? If you drink enough of it, you'll start to like it, just like the Federation. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it, it, it was such a, like, that moment was just like, yeah, okay, I get it. I get what they're going for here, and it makes sense, 100%. It's, the, it's, it's that is the legacy of the Borg. Yeah. More so than even their appearances as the boogeyman, it's that they brought into Star Trek this idea of dramatic tension mm-hmm. that you could – everything Liz said about them is absolutely true. The, the question about identity versus collective group you know, identity, the, the, the idea of you know, how do I know if I'm human? Like when do I – can I lose my humanity? Can it be taken from me? All that's good, but to me, the, the real thing about the Borg, the real keep you up at night terrified thing about the Borg – is that they can they will learn you they will come back 
and they will know you and you still won't know them. Mm -hmm. And it's that idea of, you know, in order to beat them, do we become them? Like in, in, in this, in this episode, the reason they beat the Borg is because Captain Picard was turned into a Borg. If the Borg had not turned him, they wouldn't have beat them. There's one other thing that I think is really interesting about this episode too is, and this is something that is not actually explicitly stated, but it's a feeling I get from it. It's the, this moment in like things like this that explains Q's obsession with the human race and in particular the crew of the Enterprise. Why does he keep messing with them? Why does he keep pushing them? Why does he keep doing these things? And this is a perfect example of why. Because humans are interesting. The Federation is interesting. What they've built is interesting because it's not exactly what you expect. Right? Like, it's just, it's such a an interesting thing that, that I thought was always cool because it's like, that's the ultimate question. Why would a godlike being care? What would interest them with them? And there it is. We are running short. We are running out of time. So I want to, I want to kind of bring this home with a final thought or at least a, a final idea. Star Trek is one of those franchises that has more lore than you know, Warcraft at this point. Uh, it's been going for generations. No joke, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's shaped a lot of sci-fi and a lot of people who have appreciated who have grown up to become writers in this space. And this is more for Liz. I want you to take a couple minutes and talk about what Star Trek means to you and what it meant to you, uh, why it's and so important, why you're so into it. And, you know, do you think that it's going to continue to provide sort of that same thing for you moving forward? It's kind of a big wow, question. That's a big question. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty big question you've just thrown at me. Um, I mean, Star Trek is just something that in my lifetime, it was always there. I was pretty young when Next Generation premiered. And it's just, it's always, I grew up, you know, sitting on the floor in front of the television watching Captain Picard. And it presented this hugely optimistic version of the future. And so did the original series, which I went back and saw all of that too, and all of the movies and all of that. It is, even when there's conflict, we can overcome it. Even when we face insurmountable odds, we will find a way around it. We have diplomatic solutions. We can all be friends. We can get along. We can make this work. You just see this perfect future where there's no poverty, at least early in Next Generation. You, cer you certainly saw that when you get into like Deep Space Nine. You see, okay, oh, yeah. society still has a lot of problems, but you know, in the Next Generation, in the Federation, you see, ah, oh, perfect harmony. We have everything we need. There's no lack. There's no poverty. There's no, people don't get ill because we have all this medical technology. There's so many of the problems we look back, we have now, are solved. They're over. Everything is perfect. It's this perfect world. And as, you know, certainly as I've gotten older, I look back on that and I really like that idea of an optimistic world. But at the same time, Star Trek has kind of developed with the world, developed with us as we've grown up with it. And we see, like, the transition from Next Generation, this hugely optimistic series, to Deep Space Nine, which had a lot more conflict and dealt with a lot more real-world issues. 
and kind of going back to the Borg. The essential question of the Borg as they continue through Star Trek is, can we cope with trauma? Can we recover from trauma? When the Borg went into Federation space and destroyed all of these ships, ripped families apart, converted assimilated people into Borg, can we as people recover from that? And that has continued throughout Star Trek. You meet Seven of Nine, who was a Borg, and they've pulled her out of the collective. And you watch her throughout, can she recover? In Picard, we see Hugh again, who is helping other Borg come out of the collective. Can they recover? And as we've gotten into this, as we as people have gone into our own future and seen these more difficult problems and seen these insurmountable things in the world, you know, we got to ask ourselves, can we deal with trauma? Can we recover from trauma? And Star Trek speaks to that in a significant way. And even when it's hard, even when you see this trauma in the characters, the overall message is still somehow optimistic in a way that you don't see in a lot of science fiction. Particularly, there's kind of a modern thing about going grim dark and just Mm -hmm. being dark and terrible in this dark future because right now sometimes you look into the future and it looks pretty dark but in star trek even when it's at its worst even when you see characters like picard characters like cisco terribly traumatized by the actions of the borg traumatized in a way that will echo throughout the futures that we see them live they persevere they may not ever be free of that trauma they're never because it's part of them now every trauma you experience is part of you but these characters move forward they continue and there's just even in the worst moments there's that hint of star trek optimism and that's really important and particularly when times are hard it's nice to watch star trek and see times can be hard and we can get past them we can deal with them Even when we're just terribly traumatized, terribly hurt, we can move forward. We can find a way forward. So, yeah, I think I'm going to, I'm always going to watch Star Trek, even when it's not very good, because not all Star Trek is (laughs) very good. Not all Star Trek is good, yeah. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I mean, it has its moments, good and bad. But yeah, Star Trek is always going to be there, and I'm always going to watch it, because it always has just slightly that bit of hope. Matt, same question. Uh, in September of 2024, uh, there's going to be a thing called the Bell Riots. If you go back and watch the episode of Star Trek Past Tense that displays uh, Star Trek, the next, not the next generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, Past Tense, one parts one and two. Uh, if you look at the future that they're the they go back to, they go back to the year 2024. At the time, remember that their the show was on in the 90s. So that was 30 years in the future for them. If you look at the future they're talking about, it is now. It is so close to the... It's not just now temporally. It's now. There's massive inequality. There's government overreach. There's people being treated horribly. There's also people exploiting the situation for their own gain. There's just... It is very hard to look at those episodes and not then look at the news and be like, oh... Oh, that's, that's, I can answer Julian Bashir's question. How did they let it get so bad? 
that's why we need Star Trek because Star Trek is always trying to tell us that we can do better than this. That, that, that we do not have to be this. The, this is a cautionary tale. The drumhead episode of the next generation to this day is still one of the most powerful episodes because it says, you know what? Fascism can come from people you respect. Mm-hmm. It can come from people you trust. You always have to watch for it. And if somebody that you once trusted and respected starts beating that drum, you have got to fight them. And it's just, I can list other episodes Um, from the original series. I'll never forget the terrible episode where Captain Kirk ends up on a planet where the uh, communist China and the United States nuked each other. But, you know, Kirk finds a copy of the, of the constitution and reads it to them. But at the same time, that's, he makes a good point that if the, if the words in the document don't apply to everyone, then they're meaningless. If you don't give everybody liberty and freedom, you've given nobody liberty and freedom. And tell me that doesn't resonate right now. Like there's a, that's always been there in Star Trek is that face looking at us and going, yes, we're horrible. We do horrible things. We've got blood on our hands. We've got a legacy of destruction And again, to quote Kirk, yes, we're killers, but we don't have to kill today. That's all it takes is you just say, I'm not going to do this today. And every day you just do it over again. There's a, there's a hopefulness that is born out of understanding that it's not just Pollyanna hope. It's not just everything will be fine. It's like, no, things will be hard. Things will be horrible. But you can get through it. And Guinan, of all people, and I'm not saying, I say of all people, like she's not the kind of person to say this, when in fact she's absolutely the kind of person to say this. Oh, 100%. Guinan, tell, Guinan tells Picard this. It's like, even if they wipe your people out, there will still be something left behind. That's what they did to my people. And there's still something left behind. Even if you lose, it isn't over. And I think that there's that that kind of hope. The hope that understands, yes, disasters happen. Yes, bad times come. But you have to keep going. What, what Liz said before, you have to keep moving. You, you, the traumas are real. They happen to you. They're part of you now. But you have to get up. And that's how you make a better future. That's why I think Star Trek is important. And that's why I think it will endure. I'm very similar in the camp of both of you as far as this goes. So I talk a lot about growing up and being a child of mixed heritage. Uh, It makes things a lot more difficult for feeling accepted as you're growing up, especially when you are a very nerdy kid who's super into science fiction and would be very visible reading, you know, every science fiction book that they could get their hands on. And the problem with a lot of those pieces of science fiction is you can read Philip K. Dick and there's nobody like me in there. You can read, you know, all, all sorts of the Dune books. There's, there's really nobody like me in there. But in Star Trek, there were people like me. It didn't matter to them where you came from. Not really. There were elements of it. There were always there's I mean, space racists were definitely a thing. Uh, it's a, a thing that has occurred in, in multiple of the series, but it was also the handling of it. 
the Enterprise was a a melting pot of all of these different races and uh, disabilities, and seeing them work in concert towards a common goal. To watch Jordy, who is functionally blind, not have anybody look down upon him. To have nobody comment on the color of his skin. To see Worf, who is from a race that, let's be honest, their history with the Federation is not stellar, but is there anyway. And even with some people being reluctant about it, him being accepted, him being trusted. Data, a a completely constructed artificial intelligence. Not human, not, not technically a naturally occurring race still welcome, not because he's useful, not only because he's useful, but just because he is. And then watching how they deal with things like fascism and racism and inequality in the next generation, it was an important thing for me. It shined a light in the darkness that was being dominated by grimdark sci-fi, like Liz pointed out. It made an impact on me and said, it's okay to be smart. It's okay to not be a jock all the time. It's okay to, you know, be a different shape, a different shade, a different personality, to have different preferences, to have different everything. It helped make me feel okay with who I am as a person. And I say that about a few things, and but this is definitely one of the core things that I remember sitting and watching with my best friend uh, in his house every weekend. We would catch up on all of the the episodes. We would his grandmother would tape them for us so we could take them home and watch them. Like it was, I always associated with with hope, with a better tomorrow and the lessons that it doesn't try to, that it, that it actually does try to impart upon those that view it. Uh, I think that as the series have continued to go on and as they've continued to grow, I think that not everything is a hit, but you can definitely feel that they are at least attempting to show you, Hey, by the way, here's what's going on in the world reflected here. And here's how you move past it. Like you said, the collected traumas. How do you how do you reconcile it? How do you make good and move forward? And it's always a comforting thing. I will always watch Star Trek given the option. It will always be a comforting thing for me. So I think that's going to do it for today. Unless there's anything else either of you want to add in. One little thing real fast. Uh, the reason that this show works the way it does is that up until the last minute, they didn't know if Patrick Stewart was going to renew his contract. (laughs) It was very, very, very easily could have actually been his last episode. Like that he was talking about leaving. They were going to make Riker the captain and just move on from there. Mm -hmm. Think about how different that show would have been. Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's it. That's all I had. (laughs) Liz, any better thoughts? Uh, no, I think we've hit all the big ones. All right. Of course, well, I could talk for, I could talk for several more hours about this and other Star Trek topics, but we've got to call it at some point. I, I mean, you don't want to talk about two Vicks for an hour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no one wants to talk about. Two that Vicks. was murder. No one. It was murder. <laughs> she has a blood on her don't hands. Don't even start. 
Well, folks, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast signing community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Uh, if you have any sort of uh, preference of what you want us to cover here on Lore Watch. Again, we are going to be covering all forms of media. We're trying to branch out the coverage and not just have it be dedicated 100% to World of Warcraft all the time, every time. Uh, make sure you send us an email. Send it into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. If you're a Patreon supporter, send it in through the Patreon contact form on the website or send it in through the Discord server at the Patreon Q and Podcast Questions channel. If you are not a Patreon supporter, you can also send them into our Q and Podcast Questions channel. Let us know if it's something we know about. More than happy to talk about it. I'm more than happy to keep continue to drag Liz onto this show and talk about Star Trek <laughs> if you want to talk about more Star Trek. Um, hey, there's always Dragon Age and, and Mass, Mass Effect we can talk about too. Dragon Age and Mass Effect, which I will 100% drag Liz back for as well. Um, <laughs> but let us know because I know we are we are, are very our interests are varied. All of your interests are varied. We'd like to to cover as much of it as we can because we're not just one trick ponies here. Uh, and as one final reminder, all of us at Blizzard Watch continue to stand with not just the employees of Activision Blizzard, but all of those in not just the video game industry, but the entertainment industry and content creation industry as a whole, uh, as they continue efforts to unionize uh, and demanding change for a better tomorrow and safer work environments. And again, congratulations to Raven QA, who seems like it's finally going to happen and uh, they're finally going to get their say. So keep it up. Good work, so. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. We'll see you guys next week, okay? Free Tuvix! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.